if you do not know me, some of you have not seen me for a long time. Or I have not seen you for a long time. My name is Uncle Joe, right? So children, have you seen sheep before? Meh, meh, sheep. Who has seen sheep before? I see a few hands. Okay, good. Have you seen sheep with shepherds before? Ah, I don't see many hands, right? So you may have seen sheep when you kind of were traveling with your family pre-COVID, right? And you may have stayed in the farm stay and you saw sheep running around and things like that. I have a friend. When I was studying Bible college, this friend worked and managed a farm full of sheep. Wow. I think he told me about at least two, three thousand sheep in that whole farm that he managed. And he, he told me, you know, Joe, sheep are very aimless, they are very silly. They always get themselves into trouble and they need people like me and my sheep dogs to take care of them, to protect them. See, in our story today, Jesus saw the sheep or the people that was gathering in the wilderness like sheep without a shepherd. Of course, you ask that question, isn't it? Why were the people in the wilderness at the first place? So let's look at the Bible passage in Mark chapter 6, verse 30. The apostle gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they have done and taught. Then because so many were coming and going, they did not even have a chance to eat. Jesus said to them, Come with me by yourself to a quiet place and get some rest. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the town there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. What have Jesus' disciples done? They have gone to the different villages and they have taught there and many people want to hear more. They have stirred out in their hearts a hunger for God's word. So when Jesus saw them, Jesus couldn't turn them away because they are like sheep without shepherd. So what did Jesus do? Jesus became their shepherd. Jesus taught them. Jesus fed them. See, as Jesus was teaching them, it was a long time has passed and it's time to go and have a meal. They were hungry. You can hear the stomach growling. So what do you do when your stomach growls? Say, mommy, daddy, I want food. Right? So we had a cook. Or you pick up your phone and you do grab food or food panda. And then 10 minutes, 20 minutes, half an hour, you go ding dong. Hey, you know food is here. But the people in the wilderness, they can't cook. They got nothing to cook. They can't order food. There is no 7-Eleven. There is no grab food. There is no food panda. So the disciples had a very clever idea. They think, we are very clever. Jesus will never think of that. So they went to Jesus and said, Master, Master, you know, they are hungry and we are hungry. Shall we send them away? so that they can go to the village, villagers and settle their own food. Then we can eat too. But Jesus has other plans. Jesus told them, no, they stay. We feed them. Can you imagine Jesus, the disciples' astonishment? They only have slides, five loaves and two fish. How to feed? It's not even enough to feed the 13 of them. Let alone feed the 5,000 that were there. Wow, isn't it? How is it possible? Possible not, children? Possible? Why? Because Jesus, right? That's right. 
Humanly, not possible, but because of Jesus, it's possible. The disciple brought the five loaves and two fish to Jesus. Jesus gave thanks and told the disciple, sit them in groups and distribute the food. 5,000 men ate the food that day. Can you remember, children, how many basket food did they pick up? 5,000. 5,000. How many? I see this hand. 21? Must be a mirror image. 12, right? That's right, 12. All right? They pick up 12. Imagine five loaves, five loaves and two fish. Isn't Jesus amazing? But I see, the story, this story, the feeding of the 5,000 is not the main point. Do you know what's the main point? The main point is these words that Jesus said that they are like sheep without a shepherd. And you know, many, many years ago, under the prophet Ezekiel, God said this to Ezekiel. Verse 14 in Ezekiel chapter 34, I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. They shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. So many, many years ago, thousands of years ago, God already said that there's going to be a shepherd, and this shepherd will come, and this shepherd will feed God's sheep. So when Jesus, that, if, that, that, that day, when he saw the people, 5,000 more and more than 5,000 of them, he saw them immediately as sheep without shepherd. And so what did Jesus do? Jesus became their shepherd that day. And Jesus fed them. Not just physically, but Jesus fed them spiritually. Jesus taught them God's word. Isn't this amazing, children? So I want you to remember tonight as you go back and you sleep, before you go to bed, you thank God. You thank Jesus for being our shepherd. Joy? You already pray. Very good. Okay, now Uncle Joe is going to pray again. All right? Okay, let's pray. Dear God, I want to thank you that you are our true shepherd. I pray for all the children that are here, that they will remember, or those online as well, that they will remember that we have a true shepherd who loves us, who cares for us, who gave his life for us. And so when we, go and we, when we face any situation or any troubles in life, that we know that we can run to you our true shepherd. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Very good, children. So now I also need you to pay attention as I speak to the adults. Okay, children? Ken? Yes, okay. So adults, I came across a story, an interesting story, about a pastor and a soap manufacturer. Okay? So they, they were walking, walking down the street one day in this large city, and, and, and the soap manufacturer, he, he's, he's not a Christian, and he's always kind of trying to pick at Christianity, right? So they were walking, and then he casually looked at the pastor and said, hey, pastor, you know, you know the gospel that you preach every week hasn't done any good, isn't it? Just observe, you look at here, lots of wickedness in this world, a lot of, lots of wicked people. Just look around you. The pastor made no reply until they passed by a group of dirty children making mud pies in the mud. 
And seizing the opportunity, the pastor says, I see that soap hasn't done much good to this world either. You see, there are so much dirt. There are so many dirty people around. The soap man was very quick. He said, hey, no, no, no. Soap is only useful when you apply it on your body. And the pastor say, exactly, exactly. So is with the gospel. See, Mark 5 ended with two very encouraging accounts of two people exercising their faith despite their de desperate situation. What did they do? A woman who was bleeding for 12 years believed that she, can, she only need to touch the garment of Jesus and she will be healed. She had tried always to try to be healed. None, none has healed her. In fact, she has poured forth all, her all, all that she has to try to be healed, but nothing, nothing healed her. But based on what she heard of Jesus, she decided to put her faith in Jesus. And what did she get in return? She touched the garment of Jesus and she was restored. Not just medically, she was restored socially as well because Jesus restored her back to the community. But most importantly, Jesus said, your faith has healed you. She was restored spiritually. The next story is about this synagogue ruler, isn't it, Jairus? Against all odds, he believed that only Jesus can save his daughter, who was very ill, almost to the point of death. But when, she, when he heard news that his daughter was dead, Jesus turned to her and said, turned to him and said, just believe. And he did that. He believed. And Jesus healed his daughter. Both heard about Jesus and both exercised and believed in what Jesus could do for them. They did not know the outcome of what will happen. See, sometimes when we read the Bible, isn't it? we think, oh, they know what's happening. That's why it's so easy for them to believe. No. The woman, out of faith, touched she doesn't know. Jairus seek, sought out Jesus. He doesn't know. All they have is this faith and this trust. If Jesus is really who he says he is, then there is hope. Mark 6 can be divided into broadly two kind of big portions. The first portion is Mark 6, chapter 1, verse 30. And it presents to us three accounts. And these three accounts will contrast the two accounts in Mark 5. The hearers in these three accounts were also presented with the opportunity to believe. Some didn't. Maybe some did. In Mark chapter 6, verse 1 to 6, Mark recorded Jesus returning to his hometown and he began to teach in the synagogue on Sabbath. He did some mighty works of healing and there you can see that in Mark chapter 6, verse 5. And the people were astonished. But see, the Greek phrase here can be translated as either positively or negatively. 
either astonished or amazed. But let us examine the question that was asked about Jesus so that we can get a context and so that we know whether it was their amazement, their astonishment, positive or negative. So the first set of questions question Jesus' source of knowledge, of wisdom, and of power. They would know that Jesus wasn't a trained rabbi, nor was he one of the religious leaders. Since Jesus has never gotten his former theological training, where did this guy get his knowledge, his wisdom, and his power? So they begin to doubt. Even though they have saw, they have heard what Jesus did. See, I love coffee. Those who know me know that I love coffee. And some people will label me as a coffee snob. See, when someone told me, hey, Joe, do you know this cafe serves good coffee? My first instinct is, I doubt. <laughs> I ask questions like this. Where did they get their beans from? Are they fresh beans? Do they ground their beans before they serve? Ah, the most important question is this. When you walk into the cafe, do you smell coffee? See, this is doubting Joe's questioning the authenticity and the goodness of a cup of coffee. But of course, my question about the quality of the coffee may be different from those in Jesus' time with doubts. I, I know my staff, you know, I know my staff. That's why people call me coffee snob, isn't it? But you see, this can do me a disfavor too, isn't it? I can be so much of a snob that I reject all good coffee. There are good coffee out there that I do drink. The worst case that happened to me, the worst thing that can happen to me is that I may miss out a very good coffee that is served by a good barista. But for the people who doubted Jesus, they are missing out on something very, very important. They are missing out on something that will change their life. They miss out opportunity to believe in Jesus and be safe. The next set of question is about his upbringing. If you've got your Bible, if you read it electronically, you turn to Mark 6, chapter 6, verse 3. See, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Jodas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? See, in essence, what they are saying is this. Hey, you know, I play with this guy in the town square by the well. I know his family. They are just ordinary craftsmen. There's no way this fella could possess such knowledge. There's no way this fella has such wisdom. And there's no way this fella could perform such miracles. See, what was the problem here? The problem is this. They close their eyes, they heard what Jesus is teaching, they see the miracles and say, ha-ha, this is a great man. Then they look, hey, it's Jesus. Cannot be lah. Cannot be. They could not deny the evidence of what they have seen and what they have heard, but they could not get past their prejudices. They could not get past their blinkers to see who Jesus truly was. See, due to this disbelief, Jesus could not do the mighty work that he did in other towns and other villages. 
And I take this quote from a commentator, which I found very helpful. He said, if faith is a capacity to receive what God wants to give, then unbelief is that willful refuser to receive what God wants to give. This is what, the, this is what they are doing. People in their hometown refuse to receive what God wants to give them. The response from the people in Nazareth is exactly what we saw, what we see in the parable of the, the soil in chapter 4, isn't it? So we've done Mark chapter 4, in which the gospel seed fell on pathways. So what happened to the seed that fell on pathway? Children, do you remember? Who came and picked it up? The birds. The birds came, remove it, and they are gone. So just as how the people were amazed in the negative ways about this Jesus, Jesus was amazed with disappointment, their lack of faith. So Jesus did not need to spend any longer than he needed in Nazareth. And what did he do? He shook off the dust of his feet and he moved on. He moved on to other villages to do what? To proclaim the kingdom of God is near and continue to call people to repent. So you follow me to your Bible in Mark chapter 6, verse 7 to 13, where the next account that is there. Jesus gathered his 12 disciples. He sent them off two by two to proclaim the message of repentance. The disciples went forth with Jesus' authority as they moved from village to village. They bore the name of Jesus, and they have the power of Jesus that was given to them. And Jesus charged them to do what? To be totally dependent on Him. Chapter 6, verse 8 to 9, provided us with very specific instruction to just bring the, the, the bare necessity because God will provide for their needs. See, this account describes the task, the charge that Jesus gave very specifically to the twelve in this particular context. It's not meant to be prescriptive, as it's not meant for us to follow every single one of it, because we know in the book of Acts, in other epistles, Paul and the other disciples adopt different models to continue their proclamation of the good news. However, the nature, the essence of the missions remain unchanged. Everyone that was sent forth have to trust God in their provision. Everyone who was sent forth is sent forth under the one authority, the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. And they are sent forth with one message, and that is to proclaim repentance and to proclaim that the kingdom of God is near. And Jesus warned them, just as he was rejected by his hometown, Jesus warned them and said that there will be people who will reject you. And what do you do when they reject you? You do what I did with Nazareth. You dust off the dust on your feet, and you move on. See, this practice of dusting off the dust is observed by the Jews. See, as they, as they travel the land, inevitably they will step on Gentile land. And what do they do? Before they go back home, before they go back to the Holy Land, in order not to bring the Gentile soil into their land to defile the land, they shake off the dust. 
You do a Jews does that do that to a Gentile, not the other way around, and never done to a Jew, a fellow Jew. But here, here, Jesus is telling them that when they reject you, they are not just rejecting you. They are rejecting me. And the shaking off of the dust on your feet is a sign. It's a sign of God's judgment against them. And we know and we heard that Jesus, the disciples obeyed. Just as every single aspect of it that Jesus has instructed them. And in chapter 6, verse 30, we read that the apostle returned and told him all that they have done and taught. So what does that mean? They went forth, they taught, they went forth, and they were provided. It was a good mission. It was a good mission trip. So we, we run mission trips here, and every time we come back, you know, the mission, the team will do a debrief. This is a good debrief. This is a good mission trip. The good news proclaimed, demon cast, those who were sick were healed. But Mark wasn't just happy wasn't just wanting us to, to know that it's a good mission trip. Mark wanted to tell us and make a point in this whole account. And what is the point that he wants to make? There's a reason why he sandwiched the story of John the Baptist in between the disciples going and their returning. He sandwiched the story or the account of the beheading of John the Baptist. It may sound, it may seem random to begin with, but it's not random. Turn with me to 6, 14 to 16. While it's in front of you, read with me. One, two, three. King Herod heard of it. For Jesus' name had been, became known, some say. John the Baptist has raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others say, he's Elijah. And others say, he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I, whom I beheaded, has been raised. In the mind of Herod, he could this be the John whom I beheaded? Memory of John, the Baptist came pouring back to Herod. Let's read Mark chapter 1, verse 4, just to refresh our memory of who this person John is. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Mark sandwiched this in between the sending of the twelve to highlight, I believe, two things. First, Mark wanted to remind his reader of this John the Baptist and what was his role. His role was to herald in the Christ who established the kingdom of God. John came preaching repentance and pointing people to Jesus. This Jesus who is greater than him, whose sanders is not worthy to untie. This Jesus will also baptize the people in the Holy Spirit. The second thing I think John wanted the reader to know, to hear, to see, is John's plight. After John spoke out against, the, of, against King Herod for marrying his brother Philip's wife, Herodias, she was very upset. Who wants to be told of their wrongs? Who wants to be told of their sin? No one. 
Do you like to be told of your sin? Nah. When your wife tells you, hey, I think you, speed, you, you, you drive too fast. Nah, no, 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 no. Don't tell me that. You also drive too fast. We are very good at that. When John called out their sin of adultery, Herod, although he seems to fear what John could have done to him, he was drawn to John by his pride. His fear of losing his reputation led him to still imprison John and eventually gave him to Herodias and beheaded John. See, Herod's response is like the rocky ground whom we saw earlier in Mark chapter 4, eager to listen to John's teaching, but yet the words did not take roots in his hearts, and soon it's gone too. So why did Mark highlight these two accounts? The people in Nazareth thought that they knew who Jesus was, and their prejudice against them caused them to reject Jesus, to reject his call for repentance. Even though Herod recognized John, as not an ordinary man, he too reject God's call, God's message, God's call to, to repentance because of his sin and of his pride. A warning passage that I want to draw our attention to is our opening passage to this, this evening, right? Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 to 13. Say, take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This account, the other hostile accounts that will be recorded for us, serve as a warning to every one of us who want to proclaim the good news. You know who, who, want to, who is the one that is supposed to proclaim the good news? Not just the pastors. Every one of you. As you sit next to your, your colleague who are non-Christian and you tell them about Jesus, you are proclaiming the gospel. You don't need to say, wait, uh, let me invite Joe, uh, Pastor Joe to come and sit next to us so that he can tell you the gospel. Nah, you and I, same, same. We are to proclaim. And so when we do that, this warning tells us that there will be people who will reject. But of course, in some instance, the rejection may come and lead to death. And John's death actually foreshadowed Jesus' death. Both were unjustly killed for proclaiming the truth. Both were rejected because their hearer refused to heed their call to repentance. So how well do you and I listen? How well do you and I respond when God tap on our shoulder and say, Joe, this is sin. Sin no more. No, la, God, it's okay. Joe, sin. Do not sin anymore. No, la, it's okay. There are moments in my life where I just ignore the prompting of the Holy Spirit and chose to sin. I'm sure there are in your life too. But God, our God, never gives up on us. He will continue transforming work in your life and my life. And you know the warning given in Hebrews chapter 3 were given not to non-believers. The warning in chapter 3 was given specifically 
to believers like you and I. And so we must humbly pray for God to continue to work in your life and my life, to transform our hearts so that we, we will hold fast to Jesus. You know, when the news came, the staff team was ex- were excited. When the news came about no more safe distancing, no more zoning, our first instinct, hey, we can resume service. No more registration, no more Eventbrite, no more this and that. You know what I miss? I cannot eyeball you in your eyes and say, Anita, how is your work with God? I cannot eyeball you, Jason, and look at you and say, how are you? How is your walk with God? You cannot eyeball me and say, Joe, are you walking right with God? You can't do that over Zoom. Very difficult. And so we are excited. Because you see, if you and I as fellow believer do not tap somebody on the shoulder, a fellow Christian, and say that, Jinwei, I think if you continue this way, you're going to fall into sin. Our non-Christian colleagues, our non-Christian friends, our non-Christian family will never, never, never tell us that. So we must, as fellow Christians, eyeball each other and say, how is your work with God? And so I'm not sure, are you ready to come back? It's good that you guys are back. Those online, why are you not back? This is not for them, it's for you. I pray that let us prepare our hearts and our mind to come back to our physical service. It may mean waking up early. It may mean taking the extra effort to come to Adam or to Bishan compared to just rolling out of the bed in your pyjamas, turn on, oh, Pastor Chris preaching today, hey, let's listen. Well, I have my cereal, my coffee, my thing. I pray and hope that our physical presence, our ability to eyeball each other and ask each other how is our work with God are actually very, very precious. It's so important to your spiritual maturity. It's so important to my spiritual maturity. And I hope that those who are watching online, you will come back. So we're still waiting. We're still waiting for MCCY to give us the, the, the clear guidelines before we implement. I think Pastor Chris mentioned that in the announcement just now. So pray with us. Pray alongside with us and say that we can come back. But let's pray another bold prayer. We pray that we can sing. We pray that our children's church can come back. And those are important things, isn't it? And as we look at, as we hear God's word every day, as we hear God's word every week, I pray then may, we not, may our hearts not be like those in Jesus' hometown. May our hearts not be like Herod. But may our hearts always be ready to say, Yes, God, I sin against you. Forgive me. Give me a clean heart. So that's the first part. John, uh, Mark 6, 1 to 30. The second part points us to Another two big events. So let's look at the context from 6.30 to verse 32 to give us a sense of where Mark is travelling with the next two stories. 
30 said, Apostle returned to Jesus, told him all that they have done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourself to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they have no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Whatever the Jesus' disciple has done, he has stirred up their spiritual hunger. This constant flow of people seeking Jesus and the disciples, they have swamped the disciples to the point where they have no opportunity to eat. And so Jesus called them out, brought them to a desolate place. But lo and behold, when they are there, there was this whole crowd been there for them. And you saw the, the story that I told the children just now. And the key point is this, isn't it? Like I said earlier on. The feeding was important. But really, Jesus saw the disciples or the, the, the people sitting there as sheep without a shepherd. I'm going to read you a slightly longer portion of Ezekiel. Just to help us to appreciate what God is saying and doing here. So it's the slides to Ezekiel. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock, when he is among his sheep that has been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have scattered on the day of the clouds and thick darkness. Next one. And I'll bring them out of the people, from the people and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land and will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with green pasture and the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land and they shall lie down in good grazing land. On, on, this, on, green, and on rich pasture, they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. See, this prophecy prophesied many years earlier in Ezekiel. I was thinking it's partially fulfilled here in this desolate place. I'm not sure whether you look at verse 39 or verse chapter 6. Mark recorded for us, they sat down on green pasture. I'm not sure. I mean, some of you have went to Israel before, you know, mainly desert, desert land, mainly dry. So I'm not sure whether Mark recorded that in to connect with this Ezekiel passage to see the fulfillment that indeed this Jesus is truly the shepherd. The shepherd who have gathered his sheep, nourished them spiritually, nourished them physically. See, the last time God fed the whole nation was when? Can you remember? When was God, when God fed the whole nation? Exodus. Where God rained down manna, isn't it? And sustained Israel throughout their time in the wilderness. I think Mark highlighted this account to testify that Jesus is truly the true shepherd whom God has promised. This true shepherd will feed his sheep, provide their every physical and spiritual needs. Paul, Apostle Paul echoed this in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Read with me if you can. Praise be to the Lord, to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Jesus, our compassionate shepherd, 
who never, never abandoned his sheep. He will search us out and he will care for us. Do you feel that you're hitting a roadblock every corner you turn? I encourage you to hunger for the Lord and trust that Jesus will shepherd you and I. I think that's what this, this story is about, this account. That Jesus is our true shepherd. Can you and I put our trust in Him, just like Jairus, just like the woman who was bleeding for 12 years? We come to the last story, the last account. Verse 45, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, where he dismissed the crowd. And after Jesus sent them off and dismissed the crowd, Jesus stayed on to pray. No matter how tired he was, Jesus never failed to pray. And the gospel recorded for us on a few occasions, especially after a very busy period or very important moments in Mark 1, 35, 3, 13. See, while Jesus was praying, what were the disciples doing? The disciples were struggling to row their boat across to Bethsaida. And after his prayer, about fourth watch, which is about 3 to 6 a.m., while they were still struggling in the water, Jesus walked on the sea towards them. They did not recognize Jesus, and they thought that he was a ghost. But immediately, Jesus cried out to them and said, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Take courage. It's a very imperative command that Jesus gave to the disciple. He's almost tell them, I try. Mike, yeah. Relax. Jesus made the same claim, or God made the same claim when he came before Moses in it. Moses was wondering what happened to the burning bush. And when God came and spoke to him, and Moses asked, who are you? And God said, I am who I am. And so here Jesus said, don't be scared. Take courage because I, it is I. This is Jesus' claim of his divinity. The first story is about Jesus claiming to be the true shepherd. And here is Jesus claiming to be divine. The Lord Almighty is here. Take courage and do not be afraid. And Jesus followed up his claim by coming the storm or coming the wind that the disciple has been battling for hours. See, the power to restore cosmic chaos lies not in you and I. No man is able to come cosmic chaos. Only God, the Creator God, can do that. And Mark recorded this here to tell the disciples that this Jesus, who something is John the Baptist resurrected, something that Elijah, something he is a prophet from old, na na na. None of them can do any of these things. Only God, only the Creator God can do that. And this God is here now. He is the Christ. He has came to proclaim God's kingdom is near. And He called us to repent. See now, daily grind. Do we see ourselves as sheep in need of a shepherd? 
Or do we see ourselves as a sheep who can do everything? Our anxiety, our fear, our lack of control over things that happen to us tell us that we are a sheep in need of a shepherd. We are not a powerful sheep because no sheep are powerful. They are all silly and they are all aimless. Hard to stomach that, isn't it? That I aimless, I silly, but we are in the sight of God. And therefore we need, the more we struggle to have control over something that we cannot have control over, we will just keep struggling and struggling and struggling. And God is calling us, or Jesus is calling us, stop that struggle, surrender your control to me, because I, not me, Joe Heng, but I, Jesus, truly has control. Because I could come the cosmic wind. I could heal the sick. The sick. I could feed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. Can you? Can you? Of course we can't, but Jesus can. So do you believe in every situation that we, are, we put ourselves in that you need to bring Jesus into the picture, you bring Jesus into the situation, and we can hold on to these words. Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. I end with this story. Many years ago, I had a chance to go to Uzbekistan as part of my mission trip, part of my, my, my Bible college training. That was in almost 2000. Um, still a very rough place at that point in time, full of corruption. And I was told Uzbekistan at that point in time was one of the most corrupt East, uh, Central Eastern uh, country. So I went in. The first thing that happened to me was my passport was taken from me. I was made to sit one side. I didn't know what was happening. I thought they were just processing my visa. Someone came and said, Hey, brother, where's your passport? Uh, no passport. Why? Oh, someone took it. Oh, let me see. Maybe I can help you. But I need money. I said, no, no, no. I'll wait, I'll wait. Imagine you sat there, one hour, two hours. Then the airport lights turns off because the last flight has come and gone. They were closing the shutter of the airport. Dum. Like, oh, what's happening? Someone came. You want help? You can get out. You know how fearful, I don't know whether you've been in that position before. You know how fearful I was? I was fearful. 23, 24 years old. I'm like, what is happening? And I remember, I remember, I was trembling, but I remember that I prayed as a God. This is way beyond me. <laughs> Only you can do something about it. And something in my mind tells me to tell that guy, uh, by the way, uh, I need to make a phone call. Say, why? Uh, because my friend waiting outside. Oh, you got a friend waiting outside. Oh, okay, never mind. Come with me. This is your passport. You can go. Oh, so what happened? I should just use this friend, uh, you know, long time ago, isn't it? When I went out, 
I realized my friends outside, the missionaries, has made calls. We have friends inside there. He's a foreigner. Let him out. And then when they associate me and the person inside there, I think they panic a bit. And when I was at the counter, the big boss came. I, I can see for a lot of stars. Lah. And say, you okay, yeah? Okay, you can go. But I see. It was still very, very fearful event. Even as I recount it now, I can still feel the hair stands. But I pray. I pray that moment that God, only you can have control. And I want to encourage you to do likewise. That when you're in a situation where you know that you are totally out of your depth, no matter what you do, it's not going to achieve anything. But you can pray. Because Jesus is our true shepherd. And Jesus said, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we want to thank you that you are our true shepherd. And you call us to take courage. Do not fear. For we are in your good hands. And so, Lord, I pray for all my brothers and sisters in Christ and those who are listening on, online, those who are here in the, in, the, in the church itself, that I pray that when you call us, when you tap us on the shoulder and call out our sin, I pray that we will not brush it off. May we confess and come before you and surrender our sin. Because when we repent, when we come before you, we will fully enjoy your presence with us, the true I am, our Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.